take your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. Today we are breaking uh, for the summer and beginning a new series. We had been looking through uh, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament and today beginning a topical series, which is rare for us, so you have to uh, bear with me as we all get our footing. This is going to be new and different in some ways, uh, but yet still looking at God's word. Uh, But topically, for the summer, through the issues of marriage and sexuality as we find them in the Bible. Today, our first sermon is going to come from Romans chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 16 and reading through verse 25. You can find that on page 939, if you've not already, in the Cart Bibles. Before we go and read this word together, let's turn to the Lord in a word of prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we pray uh, that you would give us wisdom from your word. We pray that you would meet us in all of our needs and answer the questions that we might have. Much more, O Lord, we pray that you would exalt yourself as we read this word. Help us to see more of our Savior and to come away from this text knowing that he is the one who has fulfilled all that you demand of us so that we may be free to follow you by the grace of your Holy Spirit. Help us, O Lord, to grow in grace as we read and as we apply it by your Holy Spirit to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Romans chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As far the reading of God's holy In an errant word, may he add a blessing as we study together today. Well, if you want to build a house, first you have to lay a foundation. Before you can hang the curtains and paint your bedroom and arrange all of the furniture, you need to do the groundwork and you need to dig the footer. You need to pour the concrete that will give your home stability, make it a home worth living in. This is, hopefully, both common sense Uh, and biblical wisdom. So Jesus promised us 
uh, that those who build on the sand will be devastated. When the storms come and wash away everything we have labored for, everything we have hoped in, far better, says Jesus, to build on the rock. Far better to start with the right foundation. You know, of course, Jesus, Jesus wasn't making a statement about building codes. He was teaching us about our faith. He was telling us both about what we believe and how we live where we start, and what we are reaching for. And according to our Savior, the only faith worth living is one that is built on something solid. Well, today we're beginning this new series, looking at, at marriage and sexuality as we find it in the Bible. And over the next several weeks, we're hopefully going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to interact with some of the challenges, some of the questions that we all face when we think about these issues. And so this summer, we're going to talk about sexual sin. We're going to talk about gender and gender roles. We're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about divorce, and we're going to talk about how marriage uncovers deep gospel truths about forgiveness and fellowship with God. And I'm hoping that together we're going to find an awful lot that is very practical, is very helpful, and, and that is even worship-inducing. But before we can say any of those things, we have to start at the beginning by laying the right foundation. In order to do that, we need to turn to the doctrine of creation. That's what Romans chapter 1 calls the truth about God that man in our unrighteousness is so very prone to suppress, to want to explain away or ignore if we can get away with it. The truth is that we are created and that the creator alone is worthy of worship. Two points for our text today. The first deals with the God of creation. The God of creation. Uh, you're probably aware, if you've been around uh, conservative churches uh, for any length of time, that Romans chapter 1 is one of the first places that we like-minded believers uh, tend to turn when we're dealing with issues of sexual sin. Specifically, uh, this chapter is known for containing one of the clearest denunciations of the sin of homosexuality anywhere in the Bible. Our reading today, you may have noticed, stopped just short of that, uh, that notorious language in verse 26, talking about dishonorable passions and unnatural relations. You add to that the, the language that we saw in verse 18 about God's wrath being revealed from heaven. You add to that the plain fact that many believers unwisely misuse this text as a, as a kind of uh, litmus test for a cultural war, a kind of barbed wire fence protecting those good people inside the church from those bad people outside the church. Add all of that together, and it's no wonder that many people think that Romans chapter 1 looks suspiciously like a hammer that's designed to drive home only one kind of a nail. So lest we get distracted with issues that we really should be dealing with later, downstream, we need to see that Paul is laying the groundwork for a much larger discussion. He's not really even primarily talking about sexuality. He's talking about salvation. That's the setup, verses 16 and 7. You, you notice he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, he says, everyone who has faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for them the gospel of God is the deliverance that we need. And we read that and we say, yay and amen, hopefully. But then we have to say, well, deliverance from what? Salvation from what? Salvation from homosexuality? No, not primarily. Paul is digging much deeper than that. Okay, what could be deeper than that? Is the gospel salvation from our desires? Is the gospel salvation from our lusts? Is it, is it deliverance from uh, our persistent tendency to give God's creature more honor than they are due? And to all of those things we have to say no, not primarily. We say yes uh, in the sense that those things are involved in this, this drama of of sin and deliverance. We say yes in the sense that all those things are symptoms of what has gone wrong with us, but we must say no in the sense that none of them by themselves is the disease from which we need to be healed. None of them is the cancer that we need to have eradicated by the gospel. The disease for which the gospel is the only cure is the cancer of denying the God who created us in the first place. Verse 18 in our text is, is really something of a thesis statement for the next three chapters in Paul's letter to the Romans. It goes on to about chapter 3, verse 21, and here's the thesis. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul's setting up categories for us. There is a God of righteousness and there is unrighteousness. There is God himself and there is ungodliness. And we're not going to unpack all that he says over the next three chapters, but the culmination of this first little mini-section in the book of Romans comes round about chapter 3, verse 20. Flip over and read that with me. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that is, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I'm sorry, verse 19. Now we know, pastor's awake. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There's our foundation. There's the truth that men in unrighteousness love to suppress. The truth is that God is God and we are not. The truth is that because he is our creator, we are accountable to him. This is a concept that every person in this room immediately recognizes. In our household, we have a long-standing rule. And the long-standing rule is that you are not allowed to take Lego pieces off of a build that someone else has made. That's an important one uh, in, in our household. Why? Why can't you do that? Because it doesn't belong to you. Because you didn't make it. Because creation entails ownership. When you make something, it is, is an extension, it is a manifestation not just of your labor, but of your creative energy. It's your design. It's, it's your plan for what it should look like, how it should function. When you create something, you are the Lord of what you have made. 
It's easy enough to understand when we're talking about Legos. But the principle doesn't change all that much when we zoom out and we see it applied to, to nations and mountains and species and galaxies. Right? Because God is the maker of all creation, He is the Lord of all that He's made. He has ownership. He has oversight of His product. And even if we bristle at being called God's product, that's what we are. His creatures, what he has made. And it means that all that he has made is accountable to him. Now we could think of it from the positive side as well, and we ought to. That if he's the one who has made us, who has created us, then he is the only one who is able to tell us how we are supposed to live in the best possible way. What life is really for what our relationships and our marriages and our human sexuality is intended to do for us and for Him. He, our Creator, is the only one who can actually tell us what is good and right and true and fulfilling in our lives. So you understand, it's not, not some uh, incidental detail, some religious myth. When we open to the very first page and the very first chapter and the very first book of the Bible and we find that in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. Act 1, scene 1, the very first soliloquy in the drama of redemption. And God's word is establishing the fundamental distinction that gives meaning to everything that we know, all existence and all reality. It tells us that we are not here by chance. It tells us that we have not come into being by our own volition, that we are not the result of unguided biochemical reactions churning along aimlessly until the cosmic machine runs out of energy. We are not merely organisms, the Bible tells us. We are creatures. And God, our creator, is Lord of all of it. And because he is our creator, we are accountable to him. From this starting point flows every other truth and every other command we find in Scripture about who we are and how we should live and what we should hope for in the first place. If we say, what is marriage meant for? If we ask, what should sexuality look like? If we want to know who we are and what is love and how should we express those things, the Bible responds to us, in the beginning, God created. Herman Bovink says that creation is the fundamental dogma. It is the foundation stone upon which the old and new covenants rest. Christopher Watkin puts it a slightly different way. He says that creation is the single block in the bottom row of the Bible's Jenga tower. And if you remove that single block, the entire structure comes tumbling down. It all comes back to creation. Now let's change the metaphor just slightly. From Legos and, and Jenga, uh, let's think about Plato. Not the philosopher. Not the philosopher. Play-doh, not Plato. Play-doh. You know, uh, especially you parents, that it is impossible to squish a lump of that stuff into anything whatsoever without leaving your fingerprints all through it. Verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us that is exactly what God has done with what he has made. There is a truth, he says, that can be known about God. And we're all convinced of it. 
Even those of us who, who want to explain it away and ignore it, we're all convinced there is a God who exists. There is a creator who's worthy of worship. We all know that there is a God who is Lord of what he's made. How do we know that? Paul says, because God has left his fingerprints behind. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He doesn't go into detail about how we can know those things, by the way. And so that's the question we might want to ponder for a little bit. How do we see the unseeable? How can we know the invisible and the things that have been made? Maybe it causes us to think about passages like Psalm 19. Right? That the heavens declare the glory of God. That the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Perhaps we see God's eternal power and his divine nature and the things that he has made that make us feel small by comparison. Or uh, perhaps we think of the fact that man is undeniably a moral creature. The fact that, that even though our moral arguments differ, we all still have moral arguments. We might disagree about what the world should look like, but we all live with a sense of oughtness, that the world ought to work in a certain way, that justice ought to triumph over evil, that good and evil, that right and wrong exist beyond our own collective social consciences. As one of our elders likes to put it, everyone is a moral relativist until you step on his toes. Then suddenly right and wrong exist, don't they? And that, too, is the fingerprint of God. It's what some people call a conscience. It's what Romans chapter 2, verse 15 will call the works of the law written on the heart. So maybe we think of Psalm 19. Maybe we think of man as a moral being. Maybe we consider the fact that man can't help but worship something. Dylan was right. You've got to serve somebody. You can't get away from it. Nobody can, even if we try. So even a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic like Carl Sagan can't help it. He couldn't help but encourage his readers with the thought that, as he put it, he says, the cosmos is within us. He says, we are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. And if you're feeling punchy, you want to say, who cares, Carl? So what? What's the big screaming deal if the hydrogen in the planets and the stars is the same as the hydrogen in our hamburgers? If it's all some big cosmic accident, who cares what we know and how we know it and whether the universe can know itself? But you see what's happening. Humanity cannot stop looking for significance somewhere outside of ourselves. It's innate. It's what we do. We can't shake the conviction that there is something beyond what we can see. We all have the impulse to find something to give our lives to. We all instinctively live as though space and matter and physical sensation are not all there is. Why? Because God has left his fingerprints all through it. Because God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And it means that everything that is, 
ought to lead us back to the God who made it. It means that all of our universe and all of our desires and all of our relationships and all of our families and all of our marriage and all of our sexuality and all the deepest pleasures that people love to pursue, all of it ought to lead us back to worship the God of creation. Then again, humanity and our sinfulness uh, is always honing our ability to avoid the obvious. Though we can see evidence all around us, we have uh, become adept at ignoring what God is showing us about himself. That brings us to our second point. The second point is the idol of autonomy. The idol of autonomy. Now, in Paul's thesis statement, verse 18, he says that men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In verses 19 and 20, he expanded that statement. He told us uh, what the truth was that men were suppressing. The truth that there's a God, that he's revealed himself through what he's made. Then in verses 21 to 23, he comes back to explain how mankind manages to silence that truth. The language here is suppression. And it's well chosen. Because suppression describes what you do when you silence something that you know is there, but you wish it was not. What is suppression? Well, in a corporate setting, suppression is managing that bad PR before it becomes a hashtag. Right? For yourself, personally, suppression is deleting that picture of yourself with the bad haircut before anybody else sees it. Suppression is that self-justification with which you smother the voice of Scripture in the split second before you go ahead and commit the sin that you full, know, full well know that you should not commit. Suppression is silencing what you wish was not there. It doesn't happen passively. It's an active process. It's something that you have to be engaged in, something that you maintain. Now, if we were going to give a, 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 a word to describe the suppression of this particular truth, we would call it idolatry. As we find in verse 25. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There it is. You see the connection? They suppressed the truth of God. They exchanged the truth of God. They elevated something that was not God to occupy the place that God ought to have. And that sin of suppression we call idolatry. On closer inspection, we find that idolatry is a sin that has two distinct stages. It is always first a turn away from God, and only then, second, a turn to the gods that we've chosen for ourselves. Verse 21 says, they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. There's the first stage of suppression. It is a thanklessness to the God who has made us. It is a refusal to give him what he is due. The second stage comes in verse 23. It sounds there like the idolatry that we already know. Verse 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Remember, man is a worshiping creature. Merely rejecting the God who made us doesn't mean that we cease to be who we are. 
refusing to give honor and glory to God doesn't mean that we simply give it to no one. Instead, it means that we give what should be his to someone of our own choosing. Since we have only two categories to choose from, once we decide not to give glory to the creator, the only idol we have left to serve is something that the creator has made, what we call a creature. Functionally speaking, it means that we always choose between serving the Lord or serving ourselves. Between giving glory to him or bowing down to the power of our personal choice. The idol of autonomy. Now this is uh, why when we focus uh, our attention on our idols in order to understand our idolatry. When we focus our attention on those things we choose to prop up and give our attention to, we're only addressing half the problem. Perhaps this is the way that we explain it to our children so that they can grasp it and grasp the seriousness of it. And we tell them, you know, idolatry is is not just uh, little wooden uh, figurines, not just golden images that people in other cultures bring their offerings to and bow down in front of. Idolatry, we tell them, is anything that you love and live for more than you love and live for the God who made you. And so we warn our our children, our little ones, we warn one another that anything uh, can become an idol. You can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of food. You can make an idol out of pleasure. You can make an idol out of your Pokemon cards, out of your video games, we tell them. Some people make an idol out of achievement. Some people make idols out of sexual pleasure. Some make idols out of friendship or education or political power. The list is, quite literally, endless. And this is that place where the self-conscious Presbyterian will always quote that line from John Calvin, right? Something about our heart being a continual factory of idols. And it's true. The problem is that none of those things we can see on the surface actually reveal the idol that is in our hearts. They're merely manifestations of a deeper deception. Consider for a minute the idolatry of food. The idolatry of gluttony. The gluttonous person doesn't actually make an idol out of food, not really. Uh, The glutton makes an idol out of comfort. You know how it works. I certainly do. We feel bad, so we stress eat. We stress eat because we believe the lie that says we have a right not to feel bad. And we know, uh, perhaps, that it's not very good for us. We know that we're going to regret it later on. We know that it's only going to make us feel worse in the long run, but we don't care. Because we've believed the lie that says there is no one to answer to but my appetite. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, said the Corinthians. Likewise, when it comes to sexual sin, think for a moment, what is the idol of the sexual revolution? It's not sex. It's not pleasure. It's not empowerment, any of those things that we see on the surface. The idol of the sexual revolution is cosmic autonomy. Making our choices the arbiter of what is good, what is right, what is true. Refusing to listen to what our creator has said about the way that he has made us. You can fit any idolatry into the same pattern. 
So it is when sin creeps into our marriages and tells us, you know, it's the other person's job to make us happy. And if they don't, I have a right to get out of this thing. It's the same way it works when sin speaks lies to our children about what it means to exist in a body that God has created either male or female. So it has always been all the way back to the garden. What was the first idolatry that our parents were engaged in in the garden? It was not the idolatry of wisdom, even though the tree was able to make them wise. It was not the idolatry of pleasure, even though the fruit was good to look at and and good for food. The first idolatry was an idolatry of autonomy. It was the thrill of having no one to answer to beyond our desires, and so it has ever been. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's the story of sin in a single sentence. God created man and man worshipped himself. Now it all means that in the next few months and, and several weeks, it means that if we're going to have anything helpful at all, to say about marriage and sex in the Bible, we have to do more than point out the sins and wag our fingers at them and say, don't do that. Don't engage in that idol over there. That doesn't go deep enough. When we talk about marriage roles, it won't be enough to say, now you husbands, you need to learn to stop loving yourselves so much. You better start loving your wives as Christ loved the church. You can do better, can't you? When we talk to our single friends, it's not enough to say, I bet you you just haven't met the right person. To meet them on the surface level there. Because our hang-ups and our challenges with all of these things run much deeper than all of those surface issues. They go all the way down to our idolatrous hearts. They go all the way back to the doctrine of creation. They go all the way back to the garden where we suppress the truth of God with the lie that whispers to us, you shall be as God's. So here's the fundamental question we need to ask before we can go any further in our study. The question is, is God really the God of your marriage? Is the God of creation really the Lord of your singleness? Is the God of creation really sovereign over your sexuality? Let's be honest. Wives, You will not always want to, quote, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, end quote. Especially when it seems like your husband is making another stupid decision. But the question of your marriage is not, are you smarter than your husband? The question of your marriage is not, do you think this is a good move? The question is not, do you feel validated and affirmed in the marriage role that has been culturally assigned to you? The question of your marriage is, is God really your God? Does the Lord get to define what is good or do you? When we get there, husbands, I'm going to have something to say to you too. But for now, the question for all of us is that in our relationships and our sexuality, the question is, is the God of creation really the Lord of your life? If he is, 
And I know that for the vast majority of those of you that I know, that is true. If he is, if, if he is the Lord of your life, then you have the foundation from which you can begin to believe all of his design for your future. Because if the Lord is the Lord of your life, then he's also the God of your salvation. He's also the Lord who has already delivered you in Christ Jesus from the sin of worshiping yourself. He has already given you hope in something that you have not yet seen. So how much more can you not see the fingerprints that are invisible and yet seen through the things that he has made? If he is the Lord of your life, then you have the perfect foundation with the help of his Holy Spirit and the wisdom of his word to walk in faithfulness. But if he is not your God, your problem runs much deeper than your sexual desires. If he is not your God, then your problem is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If that is where you are, you need more than marriage counseling. You need the gospel of God. You need his good news for those who believe. I told you just a minute ago that the sin of idolatry is always a two-step process. First we turn away from God, then we turn to the things we choose for ourselves. The New Testament tells us that the answer for idolatry is also a two-step process. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and telling us that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. How do we connect these things? The good news of Jesus Christ with our relationships, our sexuality, with, with all of the ins and outs of daily life and the cultural pressures that we're facing. We connect them by knowing that if the Lord has given us his son, we can trust him for the rest as well. If we know that he spares no thing that is good for us, we will not look with a sideways glance and wonder when he gives us a command for our relationships, mm, is that really going to turn out for me or not? This is where we have to begin. In answering all of our problems and questions about marriage and sexuality, we have to begin by setting the foundation of Christ as Lord of our lives. I hope you're believing in him today, and if you are not, the answer is a two-step process. Repent and believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O oh, gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would give us faith to follow you in the coming weeks and also in the rest of our lives as we walk with you. Give us faithfulness to you, O oh, Father, because you are the one who is faithful to us. Thank you for sending Christ Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins to give us for forgiveness for our idolatry and reconciliation to our Father. Thank you for being our God and calling us to yourself. Help us to walk with you in faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a table that proclaims to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This table is set with tangible signs and symbols where God in love and condescension speaks where we can hear. Giving us his promises of 
forgiveness, and life forevermore in the name of Jesus Christ by faith. This table is for all of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, who have stood publicly and professed that the Lord is their God, that Christ is their Savior. And if that's you, you don't have to be a member here of Redeemer, but if that's you, come and eat and drink by faith in the promises of the gospel for you. If you've not yet done that, we ask you to allow the elements to pass. Consider whether the Lord may be calling you to faith and repentance and to fellowship with himself. And then you may come and eat and drink and find life in his name. We read together in Mark's gospel, excuse me. We read in Mark's gospel that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, he said take, this is my body. And he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Would you join me in prayer? O Lord and gracious God, we thank you for this, your word, these precious promises that you've given us through your Son. We thank you for the table set before us and pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give us fellowship with yourself. O Lord, cause us to believe in all that you have said and all you have promised. Cause us to know that you have given us your Son and that we may trust you for all else as well. Help us to walk with you and feed and fill us with the merits and intercession of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.